Okay, let's pray for God's blessing on our time and his word, please. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be together. It's such a joy to have the word of God in its entirety in our hands and our Bibles. What a, what a precious, precious gift it is to have the Holy Scriptures in our own language, bound up in these nice Bibles for us to be able to open and read anytime we want to hear the very voice of our Creator and Redeemer. So Lord, open our hearts to understand prayer this morning, this great petition, your kingdom come. We pray that we would receive its truth with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Luke 11, verses 1 and 2. This is God's word. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And God bless the reading of his word. Last Sunday, we looked at the first petition in the Lord's Prayer, which is, Hallowed be your name. We always say it in the King James, Hallowed be thy name. When Jesus answered his disciples' request, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. He said that they are to begin their prayers with, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in that first petition... We give first place to, no matter what's going on in our lives, is always first place. The worship and glorification of God. In this case, Jesus speaks of our Father's name. To hallow is to sanctify, to treat as holy, to have the utmost reverence for. We treat the name of God as holy because the being represented by that name is holy. Remember we looked last time, he's holy, holy, holy. And even when a righteous prophet, Isaiah, got a vision of that holiness, he thought he was going to die. He said, woe is me, I'm undone. We ourselves lift up the name of God in our prayers and in our daily lives, the way we live. We praise God, we worship God and God's titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known by And we also emphasized last time that the verb there is passive. We're praying to God, hallowed be your name. We are hallowing and sanctifying God's name, but we're also asking God in that petition to do the same thing throughout the world among all men everywhere. May all people in the race of man on earth hallow the name of God as we hallow it. We hallow it, but we're also praying, hallowed be your name. God, intervene. Make missions effective. Make the gospel effective so that more people hallow your name. We're asking God in that petition to remove atheism, to remove ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to God from the face of the earth. Like Paul, when he walked into the city of Athens and he saw that it was overrun with idols, our souls are provoked within us when we see the same things, when we see indifference to the things of God, blasphemy of the name of God. Prayer is to be God-focused in its worship and kingdom-focused in its requests, first and foremost. And these are the primary focal points of all prayer from God's people. To worship God and glorify Him for how great and powerful and holy He is. And to pray that the rest of mankind, blinded in sin, will be reconciled to God through Christ and worship the true God as well. 
And there is love for God and love for neighbor in that first petition. Hallowed be your name. We ourselves are hallowing it. We're loving God, but we're also praying for our fellow man. May they hallow your name too. Hallowed be your name. We love and sanctify and lift up the name of God, our creator and redeemer. That's our love for God. But we're also praying that his name would be lifted up, loved and called on and worshiped by every human being on earth. That's our love for neighbor. You see love for God and love for neighbor in that prayer. Prayer is an act of worship. It's also an act of obedience and duty. All obedience and duty which God requires of man is summarized as love for God and love for neighbor. It makes sense that when we address God, we're loving God and loving our neighbor. It makes sense that we would do that. Now this morning we move to the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, Jesus taught his disciples. When you pray to God, say our Father, in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And here's what that phrase means from the larger catechism, question 191. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. That the gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever, and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to these ends. All of that in three words, your kingdom come. Pretty impressive, the Puritans, aren't they? Jesus taught all of his followers to pray in every prayer that God's kingdom would advance and that Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. It's such a basic request, and yet it burns in the heart of every true believer. Don't you long to see the churches filled in this nation? Don't you long to see people worshiping Christ and being saved and justified and being godly and treating each other with love and mercy and respect? We pray that the true gospel, not false ones, But the true gospel, the one true gospel, that we're justified by faith alone, apart from any works that we do, that that would be propagated throughout the world. And boy, do we need to pray for that these days. And that Christ's church would be successful, holy, and shine Christ's light to all who see it. The kingdom of God is to be a light on a lampstand, a city on a hill, and its subjects have the reign and rule of Christ in their hearts. One of the primary points I want to emphasize to you from Scripture this morning is this. Listen, the Great Commission that Jesus gave his disciples and his church to do until he returns, it's going to be successful, not a failure. I know that's shocking to many, but the Great Commission is indeed a great commission. And Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's one of the greatest tragedies of our time, that that basic biblical truth has been long forgotten by most of what calls itself evangelicalism today. It's not an accident, but a divine providence that God, when he taught us through his son to pray, wanted us to pray that his kingdom would come. The first two petitions of every single prayer we pray by all of Christ's blood-purchased disciples from the moment Jesus uttered those words until the day of his second coming. Every single Christian that prays is to make the name of God hallowed on earth and that his kingdom would come. 
So every time you pray, those are the first two things that you do. You worship God, you pray that his name is hallowed, that it would be hallowed by the whole world, and that his kingdom would grow in the world. Here's a question for everyone who loves and follows Christ to consider. Why would he ask us to pray for that if it's not his intention to do it? Our spiritual forefathers, they read the same Bible that we read today. You know, they read these Psalms. Listen, Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For 3,500 years, people have been singing that. Psalm 66, verse 4. All the earth will worship before you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Psalm 67, 2. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Psalm 67, verse 7. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Psalm 86, verse 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Psalm 87, verse 4. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. The people of Israel were supposed to sing that. Salvation wasn't just for them. It was supposed to be for the Ethiopians and the Philistines and the people in Tyre and the Moabites and the Ammonites and everybody else. Psalm 102.15. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now that's just a handful of statements. We could spend numerous Sundays just reading the great worldwide hope of gospel conquest that's promised in the Pentateuch, in the Psalms, in the prophets. Genesis 12, 3, God told Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In the prophets, Isaiah 11, verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus' kingdom parables. He preaches the same thing. Matthew 13, 30, 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Jesus thought it's going to start small and it's going to get huge. In Paul, in just one passage, speaking of how the fall of Israel for a short time, meant riches for the world because Israel rejected Christ and crucified him. God turns to the Gentiles, but that's not the end of the story. God's going to turn back to Israel. Listen to what he says in Romans eleven twelve. 12. Now, if their transgression, if Israel's transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Meaning when God turns back to Israel and saves probably an entire generation of Jews, it's going to be even more riches for the Gentiles. Huge numbers of Jews will come to know Christ and the rest of the Gentile world, our forefathers in the catechism, they understood that. We pray that the Jews would be called and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. That is a massive, huge project that's going to happen. A lot of people are going to be saved, folks. We also see this hope of worldwide gospel influence And of vast, huge numbers of our fallen race being redeemed by Christ from the beginning of the New Testament period, right down until just a short time ago, when 
dispensationalism, grabbed American Christianity and taught it to rejoice at the collapse of society because that means we're going to get raptured sooner. The most I've learned about the history of, or the, the more I've learned about the history of dispensationalism and its almost total disregard of the Old Testament, its disregard of the abiding validity of the law, the Ten Commandments, its false teaching, and its older form that Jews don't even need to hear the gospel because they have some other plan of salvation that God's going to save them by, and its promotion of the lie that the more immoral, bloodthirsty, and debauched the world becomes, the happier we can all be. Because that means the end is coming sooner and we're going to get raptured out of here. The more I think about those things, the more I'm convinced that old school dispensationalism stuff, that's straight from hell. That's satanic. Church father Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived from 260 AD to 340 AD, he wrote this. Listen to this guy. Quote, according to Isaiah, it will be when they behold this very salvation that all men will worship the supreme God who has bestowed his salvation on all ungrudgingly. The oracle shall be fulfilled, which said that all men should call no longer on their ancestral gods, nor on idols, nor on demons, but on the name of the Lord, and shall serve him under one yoke. End quote. That's in the third century. Athanasius of Alexandria, who devoted his life to the deity of Christ, to defending that precious truth. He read Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 was in his Bible. Just like it's in our Bible. And he said this, quote, From of old it was prophesied of the peace he was to usher in, where the scripture says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their pikes into sickles, and nations shall not take the sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Augustine said he believed history would eventually issue forth in a future rest for the saints on earth. And in fact, when the Christian church was blamed for the fall of the Roman Empire, he wrote his immortal city of God where he pointed out you can't identify the city of God with any earthly empire, Rome or any other country, America. It it transcends them all. And it continues to grow as those empires grow up and collapse, grow up and collapse. The kingdom of God transcends all of it, transcends all political boundaries and ideologies. The city of God will continue growing until the end of time. And there's a future rest for the saints on earth. Sermon 259.2 of Augustine's works. But let me share something with you here from John Calvin. Listen to this quotation. This is heartwarming. He said this, quote, But our chief consolation is that this is the cause of God and that he will take it in hand to bring it to a happy issue. Even though all the princes of the earth were to unite for the maintenance of our gospel, still we must not make that the foundation of our hope. You hear what he's saying? Even if every country on earth thinks that we're wonderful, Calvin's point is that's not our hope. He says, so likewise, whatever resistance we see today offered by almost all the world to the progress of the truth, we must not doubt that our Lord will come at last to break through all the undertakings of men and make a passage for his word. Let us hope boldly then, more than we can understand, he will still surpass our opinion and our hope. End quote. Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin said this, quote, There will come a time when the generality of mankind, both Jew and Gentile, shall come to Jesus Christ. He hath had but little takings of the world yet, but he will have it all before he's finished, end quote. Remember Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices? Brooks said this, quote, There will come a time when in this world holiness shall be more general and more eminent than ever it hath been since Adam fell in paradise, end quote. 
Now, we could spend Sunday after Sunday just reading quotations from the best Christian authors, theologians, pastors, writers, thinkers, missionaries, in every century since Christ's coming, who said exactly the same things. Why did they think that? Is that just pie in the sky? Why did Calvin say that? Why did Brooks say that? Why did Goodwin say that? Why did Eusebius of Caesarea say that? Why did Athanasius say that? Why did Augustine say that? And why do so few people say things like that now? I'd like to suggest to you the main reason that these truths are long forgotten. People don't read the Bible anymore. There's too many things on Netflix to watch, right? You've got too many things to binge on, right? What if people read the Bible more? We'd be a lot more optimistic about the future. We'd be a lot more optimistic about it. As a wise elder in this church told me once, actually has told me many times, this is a direct quotation, the Holy Spirit works through his word in the minds and hearts of men to sanctify them, but if we don't know the word of God, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a whole lot to work with. Ouch. Pastors need pastors too. That hurts. <laughs> Jesus said, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But if the word's not in here, and it's not in here, what is the Spirit supposed to use to sanctify us? Every time you bow your head to address God in prayer, the second petition, your kingdom come. Jesus commands us to pray that God will bring his kingdom because that is and has been God's plan from the beginning. Darkness reigned over the entire earth after Adam sinned, except for one little ray of light in Adam. And then Abel, Abel, sadly, was murdered by his brother Cain. And then you have the establishment of the line of Seth. And eventually you have the whole human race, except for Noah and his household, basically turning against God. What's the world like in Genesis 6? The Lord looked down and saw that violence covered the whole earth. And that all the imaginations of man was only evil and not continually. And the light of God's mercy then slowly but surely begins to grow. And it has grown and grown all the way until today. And it's going to continue to grow. And the prayer that Christ taught us to pray is itself an acknowledgement of our inability to change this world by our own gifts, power, or resolve. Jesus said when you pray, pray, hallowed be your name. Who is going to have to make that happen? God. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Who's going to have to make that happen? God. You and I cannot dispel the dominion of sin and Satan. No matter how gifted someone might be as a speaker, no matter how much of a genius they may be as an oratory person or as a writer, an author, creative genius, the arts, smoke and mirrors and everything else, all men are by nature children of wrath unless God changes them. God entrusts us, his church, with the gospel, the Bible, preaching, prayer, and the sacraments. And it looks foolish to the world. We look like fools who believe and preach a foolish me message that's delivered through foolish means. 1 Corinthians 1.18 the, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Listen, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews seek for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, and let me add something, Americans search for entertainment, Americans search for practicality. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness and to Americans a stumbling block and foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The kingdom of God does not come through how clever the preacher is or through how creative the worship team is. 
or through entertainment, or through human wisdom. Paul was so clear on the matter. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They scoff at it, laugh at it, mock it. Yeah, blood dripping. A first century Palestinian Jew is going to get me into heaven. That's nice. The means by which the message is delivered, preaching. That's also foolishness to those who are perishing. God commands these things, however. God commands them. He manifests his word through preaching. It says in Titus 1, 1 through 3. God is pleased to save through the foolishness of preaching those that he is destined to believe. God gave us prayer, preaching, sacraments. Foolishness to the world. But when the church preaches the word of God and the gospel with perfect clarity and calls people to repent and believe, God gets all the glory for both the salvation of the lost and the sanctification of the saved. It's the word that brings the kingdom of God. And if we truly believe God will grant what we ask as Jesus taught us, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, then we must engage in the means by which the kingdom comes and advances in the world. And that is the preaching of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So many people asked Martin Luther, asked him, how would you do this? How did you turn the world upside down? They wondered, you must be super duper clever brilliant or motivated or something and his answer is is wonderful he said i simply taught preached and wrote god's word otherwise i did nothing and then while i slept and drank beer with my friend philip at omsdorf the word of god dealt the papacy a mighty blow i did nothing the word did it all end quote someone needs to make a plaque of that one and we all need to hit it when we when we walk out of here i'm kidding When we pray, your kingdom come, we are acknowledging the bondage of humanity to sin and Satan. When we say that, let your kingdom grow, we're recognizing we can't liberate people from sin. They can't liberate themselves from sin. So God, you have to do it. He's telling us to ask him to do it. God and God alone, by his grace alone, is able to free humanity from this unbreakable bondage to sin. So blinding and powerful is this bondage that, listen, its prisoners don't even realize they're in bondage. Do you ever notice that? The world around you is crying constantly, what? Freedom! We're free! We're liberal. You know, that's what the Latin term means, free. And yet they have no idea that they are the most grim slaves of sin imaginable. The most horrifyingly awful form of bondage you could ever think of. So used to being the willing, happy slaves of sin, they don't even see that they are in bondage. Jesus said that. To his Jewish opponents in John 8, 32, he said, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Therefore, we pray for God to make his kingdom come. The kingdom of God is Christ's gracious reign in the hearts of his born again, justified and adopted people. Only God can increase his reign in the world. We must pray and preach, pray and preach, pray and preach the gospel, asking God to bless those prayers and that preaching with power from on high to make people alive in Christ and to expand the reign of Jesus. 
Apart from the supernatural intervention of God's power, all of our preaching is in vain. All of our preaching is in vain. God doesn't accompany it with his saving mercy. It's not going to accomplish anything. You ever notice in the book of Acts, Peter preaches there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and thousands of people get saved. Stephen preaches. Uh, do thousands get saved when Stephen preaches? None. How many converts did Stephen have? Zero. And in fact, his sermon got him killed. Were both of them faithful to Christ and faithful to the truth and faithful to the gospel? Yeah, absolutely. What was the difference? God blessed one and not the other. Sometimes the apostles preach and people be like, that's interesting, we'd like to hear you again on that. Some would believe, some would scoff and make fun of it. God is the one who has to do that. God is the one who gives the increase. God demonstrates his glorious saving and life-transforming power every day in this world when people repent and believe the gospel, when men decide to stop making excuses for themselves and step up to the plate and lead their families as men of prayer and men of the word, when women decide to throw away the lies of feminism and embrace the far more glorious and higher calling of God's word for them, when covenant children decide to stop wasting all their time and to turn to the Lord in prayer and to turn to the scriptures and read and study and memorize, to love and pray for their siblings instead of fighting with them, to obey their parents right away, all the way with a cheerful heart, that's the fruit of the work of God. Those are the fruits of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people, and they are things that only He can make happen. These are the work of Christ. This is what we're praying for. Your kingdom come. These are the fruits that don't grow in nature's garden. You won't find those anywhere here. They only come supernaturally through the proclamation of the gospel, through the word of God. Our king has instructed us to pray that he would advance his kingdom in this world, that he would liberate men and women from their bondage to sin, that he would glorify himself by bringing more and more people into his church. If God is able to save an entire city, Nineveh, through a reluctant prophet who had just gotten vomited up out of a fish's belly and walked into the city without having spent any time on his sermon and spoke five Hebrew words in front of them, then God can work through anyone, can he? The guy did not want to go there. You know the story of Jonah? The fish vomits him up. He walks into the city. Here's his powerful, clear, impassioned sermon. Forty days and then it was overthrown. That's it. That's the whole sermon. Biggest revival in the history of mankind. And what's Jonah's response? I knew you were going to do that. I, I told you I didn't want to come here and preach. I hate those people. I don't want them to be in heaven with me. If God can do that through someone like that, you think he can glorify his grace today? It's an amazing thing to think at any moment he could do that. At any moment, God could break forth. What if we all asked him to? Pray for revival. Pray for conversions. I know you all have a million things on your mind. There's so many things. There's so many things that crush our hearts and break our hearts and make us lose sleep and put our stomach in knots. We've got so many things going on in our homes, families, marriages, kids. All, every, there's so many burdens and so many things. There's, there's trouble in the air. But the thing behind all of it is idolatry and slavery to sin. So pray that God's name will be hallowed in the world and that his kingdom would grow. Pray for revival. Pray for conversions. Pray for the salvation of our nation and for the salvation of the whole world. This is why the church's adoption of a pragmatic approach to so-called church growth has been so devastating to the credibility of the faith in our country. The word pragmatism, as it applies to the way church functions, uh, means basically this. Whatever it takes to make the church's numbers grow, do it. Whatever works, do it. If entertainment during the worship services works, do it. If pastors putting away the Bible and telling stories and anecdotes and doing stand-up comedy peppered with out-of-context Bible verses here and there, if that works, do it. 
In his book, The Purpose Driven Church, which I do not recommend, Rick Warren, megachurch pastor of Saddleback Church in Southern California, a church which averages 22,000 on a Sunday, he pushes the pragmatic approach to ministry and church growth. And he calls it riding waves of what God is blessing. Riding waves of what God is blessing. All we need to do, so we're told in his book, is look around us at the churches that are bursting at the seams and find out what they're doing and imitate it. Evidently, the larger the church, the more God is obviously blessing it. We're also told that no matter what those churches are doing, we are never to criticize what God is blessing. This is a direct quotation. Never criticize what God is blessing, even though it may be a style of ministry that makes you feel uncomfortable, end quote. The concept of faithfulness to the word of God and the Great Commission, it's rejected completely. Warren says, we are required to bear fruit. He says, quote, the Bible clearly identifies numerical growth of the church as fruit. Many of the kingdom parables of Jesus emphasize the unavoidable truth that God expects our churches to grow, end quote. The thing missing from the entire book, sadly, is the notion that it's God's word and the gospel and the Holy Spirit working through that alone that produces that growth, real growth. A church that isn't growing rapidly, we're told in his book, obviously is doing something wrong. We're not riding the waves of pop culture that would surely make us grow. You know, the main point that I got from reading that book, I was 22 years old when I read that book, a long time ago. The main point I walked away from that book with was this. By our creativity, ingenuity, and genius, we grow the church. We grow it. And if our churches aren't growing, we just haven't found whatever the current wave is of what God is blessing. In fact, there's a chapter in the book titled, Surfing Spiritual Waves. And what we need to do, we're told, is not make waves, but Look and see what waves God is already sending our way. In fact, Warren even tells us that he had to do ministry for 20 years before he could write this book because he had to learn how to ride the waves first before he could tell others how to do it. What we need to do is locate the huge churches in our area and find out what they're doing, what waves they're riding, and then imitate them. Warren even says, quote, You may have experienced a few wipeouts in your ministry. I certainly have. You may have missed a few waves. This doesn't mean you should quit. The ocean hasn't dried up. It is my hope as a fellow surfer to share a few tips on how to ride what God is doing in the world. Let's go catch a wave, end quote. Compare that to this, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. Where does church growth come from? God, working through his word, through those foolish means. So he gets all the glory for it. Paul even says, so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Our duty is not to find out what pop methods are being used to grow huge churches, but to be faithful to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and to preach and pray that God would bless the ordinary ministry of his word. The last thing the church needs today is to panic and to try gimmicks and entertainment and nonsense because nothing else seems to work to grow the church. God will give the increase in his time. We preach the gospel, we look for God to bear that fruit. We disciple our covenant children and we look to God to give the increase. We faithfully worship God in a way that he has told us to worship him and not in any way that we think might attract unbelievers and we know that God will bless us in his time. And folks, listen, the incredible desperation of the church in America and its terrible fear of the future 
has caused it to take matter into its own hands rather than trusting God to work through the proclamation of his word and gospel. The results have been catastrophic. Catastrophic, to say the least. Instead of creating a more holy society, our society has created a worldly church. That's all that's happened. A church that is, for all intents and purposes, almost completely indistinguishable from the world of pop culture. Listen to scripture again. Ephesians 1.19. Paul here praying for the Ephesians. He wants them to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. That's the power of the church. The ascended Christ on high. His resurrection power by which we're made alive and sanctified. Philippians 2.9, Paul said, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. When Christ ascended back into heaven, he was taking the throne of his father David, where he now sits and rules as king of his church and king of the entire universe. The enemies of God continue to be fierce and filled with hatred against the church, With greed, their God, they lay their plans to spread darkness over every corner of the earth. And they roar and they plot and they scheme against God and against the gospel. They make alliances to stand against God and to stand against Christ. I want you to turn to two different psalms with me. Please turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. I want to encourage you, if throughout your life you've been taught that we should be pessimistic about the future and we should get excited about the collapse of society because we're going to get raptured sooner and get out of here sooner. I want you to erase that from your thinking and listen to the psalm and believe what it says. Look at it and believe what it says. And imagine the people of Israel singing these psalms together. We're going to look at this one. We're going to look at Psalm 67. Look at Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Stop there. That is exactly what's happening in this country right now. We will not have rules for the way we live our lives. We want freedom. Of course, the freedom they speak of is the grossest form of bondage imaginable. But that's what the kings of the earth and the rulers and all the progressives, let's tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. We will not be bound by anything that God says. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now listen closely to verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now stop there. We must not doubt that the Son has asked the Father for the nations. And he has asked him for the very ends of the earth for his possession, his blood-purchased possession. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Jesus came to seek out and save the lost. What a privilege it is for us to be among the saved. We were lost too until our glorious king subdued us to himself, justified us by faith alone, apart from any works that we have done or will do, and brought us into the family of God, having secured the gift of eternal life for us. And folks, listen, there is still so much to do. There is so much to do. The collapse of our society, its gross immorality, the the rise of big government, that's a call to us to pray harder. Let your name be hallowed again. Let the gospel be preached again. Let your kingdom grow in the world. Save our lost children, our lost spouse, our lost family, our lost neighborhoods, our lost co-workers. There's so much love for the people of God to give to the lost world. So much love for husbands to shower upon their wives. So much love for families to give to their covenant children. So much of the world yet to hear the gospel. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for the destruction of Satan's kingdom and for the advance of Christ's kingdom. Because he asked his father, I want the nations as my inheritance and the very ends of the earth for my possession. And the father gave it to him. And that's why his gospel cannot be stopped. Setbacks, hardship, persecution. Yeah, you know what that does? It purifies the church. It gets the driftwood out. It shows you who the real Christians are, not the cultural ones. Matthew 12, 29, Jesus said, How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Listen, at his first coming, you look at the opening three verses of Revelation 20, Jesus has bound up Satan. He has bound up the strong man and he's been plundering his house ever since. You want to know what he's been plundering? Look around you. Who are we? We used to be citizens of someone else's kingdom, Satan's kingdom. Jesus plundered us from him, took us away from him. Believers are the plundered goods taken by Jesus from the dominion of Satan because the Father gave him the nations and the uttermost parts of the world for his possession. The Lord Jesus is not going to take just a few of Satan's goods. And now that he's bound and powerless against the preached gospel, he's going to take most of what Satan has, if not all of it. No, I want you to turn to one more psalm with me. Look at Psalm 67. Short psalm, it's only seven verses. Very worth memorizing. Psalm 67. And once again, as you're turning to Psalm 67, ask yourself, do I believe what it says here? Do I believe it? Psalm 67, verse 1. The superscript says, For the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a psalm. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Salah. That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Salah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let All the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. When you pray, your kingdom come. In that, we pray that God would call the Jews, that he would bring in all these nations, all these peoples, and hasten his second coming. There's a glorious future for the church in this world, but it's going to be a battle getting there. There's going to be a lot of casualties along the way. A lot of tears, a lot of heartache, a lot of unanswered prayers at times along the way. 
There's going to be lots of setbacks, a lot of hardship, a lot of heresies, schisms, splits, and all kinds of ugly stuff. Doing battle against Satan's kingdom is always ugly, and there's always blood, and there's always casualties. But our orders are clear. Worship God and be faithful to the defense and confirmation of the gospel to everyone. You will have setbacks and heartaches along the way. Remember that it is always God's show and God's kingdom. Be faithful in the duties that God has called you to. Love your family. Love your church. Love your spouse. Work hard at your job. Do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Shine the light of Christ in every calling you have in life. Just like Joseph did when he was in prison. When he was a slave. Seize opportunities to be a witness to people. Love people well. Don't cast pearls before swine. Look for people to invest your time in that will yield eternal fruit and leave the rest in the hands of Christ. We can't make God's kingdom come, folks. And and by the way, when Reformed churches get bit by the pragmatic bug, we just look even nerdier than we actually are. Okay? I can't be cool. I tried it when I was a teenager. It doesn't work. (laughs) Only God can make his kingdom grow. We pray that he would make his kingdom grow in the hearts of our families, of ourselves, and in the salvation of all mankind in the world. Every time you pray, every time you pray, Jesus taught us, always leave those first things first. Hallowed be your name. When you pray to God first and foremost, whatever burdens or issues or problems are going on, you worship God first and you pray that others would worship him. And then you pray for the growth of his kingdom. Your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And pray believing not only that God can do this, but we know from scripture he most certainly will. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us a people whose minds and hearts and mouths are saturated with the word of God so that we would not be excited about our culture and our world's collapse into immorality and, and sin, but that our hearts would be broken, that we would pray even harder, that we would work even harder at our jobs, that we'd work even harder as husbands loving our wives, as, as wives loving their husbands and submitting to them, as covenant children, as siblings who are professing Christians loving each other. The problems are a challenge to us to rise above them through the power and grace of your spirit and your word working in us, that we would shine your light in the world. Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed in the world and that you would bring millions to Christ and bring them out of Satan's dominions into the liberty of Christ and his disciples and that your kingdom would come, that you would call the Jews, bring in the fullness of the Gentiles, that your church would be furnished with all of the gospel officers that it needs to grow and thrive and prosper and shine the light of your truth and holiness into this world. And we pray all these things, believing that you will do them. In Jesus' name, amen.